Hi, I am Andrew, a final year medical student at Lancaster University and the senior lead for education on the IME Student Council. Welcome to the first episode in our new series, DMCs with the IME, in which we explore how students can diversify medical careers by speaking to individuals who are involved with medical ethics as part of their work. In today's episode, you will hear from myself and Gayatri as we speak to Dr. Wingmei Kong, the Head of Ethics and Law for Undergraduate Medicine at Imperial College London and Consultant Endocrinologist. We hope you have as much fun listening to it as we did recording it. See you on the other side. So um, welcome to the IME podcast series for DMCs at the IME. Uh, today, our guest, we've got Wing May, who is the chair of the IME um, committee. And I'll let her introduce herself. So Wing May, do you want to give a quick introduction? Good morning, Gadrian. Thank you very much for inviting me for this podcast. Uh, so my name's Wing May, and I am an endocrinologist and diabetologist. And I'm also, um, as you say, uh, chair of the trustees Institute of Medical Ethics. Um, and I have been involved in ethics education since 2006 at um, Imperial College. Amazing. Thank you very much. Uh, so we've got Andrew here as well, who will also introduce himself. Hi, uh, my name is Andrew Wilson. Um, I'm a final year medical student at Lancaster University. I'm serving as a senior education lead for the IME this year. And yeah, and obviously my name is Gayatri uh, and I'm the chair of the Student Council, the Institute of Medical Ethics, and I'm a fifth year medical student at the University of Cambridge. So if we kick off and just start having a bit of a conversation about, you know, your involvement, Wing May, in medical ethics um, as, as a field and um, before we kind of get into that um, as such, can we take you back to your time in medical school and how you found that generally? Yeah, I mean, it was very different yeah. from how it is today. It was a long time ago <laughs> as well, but I don't think exactly how long. Um, but there was no ethics teaching. Uh, there was, we had one clinical communication session um, in my entire clinical training which was great, but it was it was just one and people thought it was a bit experimental. Uh, the only mention we had of ethics at any stage, I remember we were doing, um, it was in the undergraduate period, the kind of, it was a traditional um, free clinical and clinical, and they were talking about modified gene modifications for modified crops. And there was no discussion. Somebody asked about whether there any ethical issues and all that. They said, well, this is just going to make the world a better place. <laughs> was, um, no thought that maybe there could be downsides or not everybody was on board with that. Um, and I mean, I also remember actually later when I was doing my obstetrics and gynecology that one of our ONG um, leads was telling us about all the advances that had been made with um, antenatal screening for Downs and screening program. And one of the slides they showed was the cost savings from screening for Downs because of the cost, the additional cost of healthcare for children with Downs against the cost of the screening programme. I mean, that's unthinkable now, but in fact, um, I mean, I did, I had some students I helped supervise um, quite a long time ago doing a BSc project. And we looked at some of the discourse in the, you know, as, as recently as the early 2000s and cost was still in there. Um, so yeah, we've we've come a, a long way in 
actually being aware of value judgments that we were making without even knowing them. So, so going on forward from that, because you mentioned uh, well, ethics, you know, education, it is a relatively new thing to the medical curriculum. Do you think that's had an impact on healthcare and how clinicians approach, you know, ethical dilemmas and problems that they face in medicine? I think there has been a big change in medical education, and that has probably built up momentum over the past decade. So in terms of how does that then translate into practice, I mean, one of the one of the challenges in medicine is it is a much more flat structure than it used to be, but it is still quite hierarchical. And so for the new generation of doctors who I think are having different conversations and thinking about healthcare in different ways, their confidence to change things will take time to come through. But I see it now in you know my first and second year doctors, foundation year doctors, being much more likely to question what is happening, what we're doing in a way that just can't imagine doing 10 years ago. So I think there are changes, but um, it's more than just understanding or being able to put together an ethical argument. People have to see that there's a problem and then they have to have the confidence and the skills. I mean, there are skills, you know, practicing ethics is a craft. There are skills you have to then negotiate with your colleagues to, to make change happen. Um, so I, th- I think I, I think we're sowing the seeds, but yeah. it's not going to be a revolution. No. Uh, and, you know, the other thing you've got to remember is the starting point is people go into medicine, and I think the majority of people have gone into medicine because they do want to make a difference, mm-hmm. even when they weren't. I don't think doctors were unethical when I was there. It it wasn't the point of discussion. Um, and, and in some ways, maybe it was easier in some ways to be ethical and that now we're under far more constraints and um, the pressure, the amount of bureaucracy I think has increased, which I think is a, can, uh, a deterrent to taking that extra time um, for kind of ethical thinking and ethical action. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that you say that you the, the ethical teaching was pretty non-existent back then because now I think you know universities make that conscious effort of of incorporating at least one module or one course that covers medical ethics and a bit of you know policy and law as well, which is you know I think definitely a very positive change that we see. So, did you kind of decide to make a change, and is that why you pursued the intercalation option that you did? And if you could share about you know your intercalation option and and um, you know your thought process of picking it and your experience of it. Yeah, so that's it's interesting because at the time I wasn't thinking particularly of ethics. Mm. I was just interested in doing something different. I I really enjoyed all the the basic science. Um, I think I've always been interested. I think people are very complicated, and I've always been fascinated as to why people do things and why people do good things and why people do less good things. So there wasn't an option there for ethics when I was at university. You couldn't intercalate in ethics. Um, So I chose history and philosophy um, of science because it seemed interesting. It was really (laughs) difficult for me then coming in. I do sympathise now because we run a BSc at Imperial on humanities, philosophy and law. And I think coming as what you now call a STEM student with a very positive, positivist um, mindset 
And you get very good at what we call deductive reasoning, working out what the answer is to go into humanities where it's inductive reasoning, where you're kind of opening up and using reasoning to say why certain ideas might hold more sway than others was a real challenge, I'd say. Then that was my kind of year three at university to get on top of that. I thought it was fascinating, but I don't think... At that stage, I really understood the kind of philosophy of knowledge <laughs> to think about why it was so difficult. And I went back to do a master's many years later, and then it all was much easier. But I think, yeah, at that stage, it was quite tough, but it was fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I can. I think I can definitely relate to that, because when I did history and philosophy of science as well, same same course, it was such a such a different experience. And, and you have to kind of change the way you question and mm. how you think as well. And I think that it leaves a lasting impact. Would you agree that, you know, that even just a year of changing the way you think, you carry that forward into, into practice. And I feel like even now, I, ha- I feel like I have a more wider view on things than before. Would you say that was the case for you? Absolutely. I think, you know, you go in because you've done science A-levels and then it's very, you know, my preclinical is very science heavy. And you're thinking the answers are all going to be found through empirical research. And then suddenly you discover there's a whole world that thinks differently. And, you know, I'm not sure I completely got to grips with how they thought in that year of my, the effectively the BSc year. But it's just realising that there is a different way of seeing the world. And also that a lot of things that I didn't think were quite right or quite fair, seeing that there was a different way of approaching those problems. Um, and I think the you know the nice thing I didn't do my masters until um, ten or so years later, but by then I think I'd done a lot more stuff at the coalface. I'd been in a lab doing research, and in fact I had much more material to work on to think about ethics then. And then it all made a lot more sense. Um, I think yes, at that, that stage coming from science, it is quite difficult, but yes, it definitely opened my eyes. It's uh, it's really interesting that the both of you mentioned the benefits of taking this year or even longer if you do the masters, to have this a different way of thinking to approach medicine for a unique set of eyes, uh, which sounds like it has positive impacts on, you know, how you really approach the clinical side of medicine as well and how you treat patients, the, sort of the science and the art of it. Obviously, from a practical perspective, it'll be difficult for all medical students around the country, say, to take this year to do a degree, integrated degree in, you know, history and ethics of medicine or something similar so I guess my question is, you know, how can medical education or ethics change? How should medicine change to sort of facilitate a similar uh, outcome for other students, you know, who don't have the opportunity to pursue such a path? No, I think that's, that's a really good question and one that's very close to my heart. Because obviously, first of all, for a lot of medical schools, intercalation is an option. Um, it's also money now. It's another year of study, which is a, is a big impact now. I think for medical students trying to work out whether they can actually afford that and then take on more debt. I I think it's actually, as educators, we need to think about what we're we're teaching. So we're not trying to make philosophers. We are trying to sow the seeds for future doctors to grow into ethical practitioners. And as I say, we have this fantastic starting point that you know, we've got a self-selected group that actually care and want to make a difference. And um, so I think part of it is is building on those opportunities. And 
you know, I come to this, I talked about ethics being a craft, and I think there is an aspect of care which often gets put down as a soft skill, but care is actually what we are as human beings. It's what's going to distinguish us from AI. And you want your doctor to know the, the clinical science, to know the right interventions, to be good at assessing you, but you want them to care. And care is not simply about being nice. It's about taking the time to think about what matters, about why you're doing what you're doing. And I think one of the difficulties with a lot of education is that we spend a lot of time focusing on what you should be able to do and how you should do it. And obviously that's really important because it's pretty useless having a doctor who doesn't know what to do or how to do it. But we spend less time on why we do what we do. And if you don't know why you do something, then you're not going to question when actually things aren't right. You know, we're seeing that a lot now with this awareness that there's a lot of structural bias, you know, related to the colour of people's skin in healthcare that we just didn't see before. But I think a lot of people did know, but they didn't have the language or the skills or the courage to ask why. So I think ethics has a really important role in teaching students, future doctors, to ask why when they feel uncomfortable about something and how they do that. And that care to do that takes time and it takes effort. Because, you know, when you're really busy and you are really busy as a doctor and you're pulled in many directions to keep that wanting to care, to take the time to ask why and think about how things could be better, is difficult. So I think there are things that we need to do as well as teaching students about how to articulate their reasons in a logical and consistent way, which is, it's people, a lot of people go to ethics because that is fascinating. I think I did to begin with, see different ways of arguing your way around a problem. But the actual awareness that things aren't right needs sensitivities. How do you encourage that in students to be sensitive and then to then ask why and have that confidence to ask why and to talk about it? So I think... um Humanities are really important beyond ethics. Um, it's why within the Institute of Medical Ethics, and this is before my time, we set up the Journal of Medical Humanities, but it's been something we have, and certainly since I've taken on the role of chair of trustees, have been very keen to support medical humanities um, and its kind of collaboration with medical, with, um, medical ethics. Um, is that humanities give students the opportunity to see that human side of, of medicine and give them the motivation to take the time to care. It's the human stories that actually move us and energise us. And I think certainly you know, from the experience of COVID that it was very difficult not knowing what to do, but what were people, so many of my colleagues said, it was not being able to um, physically care for people you know, because we had PPE to begin with, you know, it was pretty scary at the time. So that that human side of medicine and trying to give students as much exposure to that care is, is I think, one of the real things to motivate them. And then you give them the skills to actually think about things ethically. Um, but that motivation to care. So it, within our education, our curriculum review, we have tried to bring humanities in um, from year one to the students um, and try and feed it into assessments as well. 
Um, so it's it's a bit of a challenge, but to normalize it, that it's not something you do as an additional part. It is part of how you learn medicine. I think it was quite interesting when you mentioned, you know, teaching the students to question things when, when they're going wrong. Mm-hmm. Why? I think, you know, I think, Andrew, you might agree with this as well, is sometimes when you're on placement with your student colleagues, there's some students who are inherently better at doing that than others. So what to what extent do you think you can teach that skill? So I think everybody asks why. The question is asking the why for the questions relating to kind of ethics, mm-hmm. the human side of medicine. So I'm... You know, the evidence shows that when students start off in medical school, they have a huge capacity for empathy and wanting to care. And then the nature of medical school, because there is a lot of content, a lot of what and a lot of how. And then also our assessments and assessments. I think partly they matter because students take them very seriously. Obviously, you want all our students to pass their assessments. But we have, you know, medical school does select people who have always strived to be at the top of their class. When actually, to be a good doctor, you need to be good. You don't need to be academically at the top. There are many other skills that you require. But I think because of that, there's a huge kind of pressure that we create within medical education students to to know about the how and the what and less about the why, because they're not. it's not recognised as much. Um, because it's it's harder to assess you know, your your MCQs and single best answers are not particularly good for that, and so the type of assessments that you need take a lot more time. You know, it, it takes time to if you want them to write an essay, but actually beyond an essay, to have Andrew. You were talking about how at Lancaster your final year, you've done all finals and you you do your um, placements, and you know with your good supervisors they will time take time to talk to you about your different write-ups, your different case reports. And that taking time is actually what's really important. Discuss the, the personal details, the, you know, the specifics of, of that individual person that you were caring for to allow you that time to reflect. So I, I think um, creating that time is difficult, but if we think it's important, but that's what our future doctors um, need to be able to do, we have to do we have to do more of that and give them more opportunities. I think the other thing is that people like being able to care. It is very rewarding. You know, when you talk to doctors, I say coming back to the pandemic, taking away all the ways that we knew how to care was incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, and I think that explains a lot of the burnout that we saw you know, a year on in the pandemic. So I think giving students the opportunity not only to care, but to validate that. So part of that is when you have a one-to-one with an older doctor and you tell that doctor something and they say, that's really great that you thought about that, that validation. And I think we need to create more opportunities to do that. And I think there are ways that we can do that, even in, in larger cohort teaching. Within a lecture base, I think there are probably ways that you can start sowing seeds. But with small group teaching, there's a lot more opportunity and the kind of things that we ask students to do um, in small group teaching that are less about finding the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and can I ask you, when did you, you know, find or did you develop an interest in medical ethics? Or was it something that you just stumbled across? Um, was it a calculated decision? 
to you know integrate ethics in in your in your uh, clinical practice or how how did you kind of come across that whole process? So I was did a very kind of traditional route. You know, I graduated and I did what they call the golden triangle jobs. Do they still exist? The golden triangle it used to be called the golden triangle of jobs where you went in. Um, <laughs> your certain jobs at one hospital than another neurology job somewhere and then so and then you do a PhD so I did a PhD in neurophysiology and um and then I thought actually this isn't really what I'm that interested in so I mean I did it because I'm one of those people that I just finished something that I start so I'm um, not sure that's a good thing or a bad thing but I just thought I put all this time and effort into something and I'm not it's not really me. Um, I could see people where it really was then. And so when I was coming up to my final year of my PhD, I just like, I need to find something that I'm really actually interested in. I think I was in a bookshop and I just picked up a bioethics <laughs> book and started reading it. And I just sat down and I thought, this is really interesting. This is what I should be doing. And so then I applied to do a master's in ethics. I was very lucky because the head of my lab well, I went and, and said to him, actually, do you know why I want to do a master's in ethics? So, you know, we let my money um, play out for a little bit longer. And then I stayed and supervised some kind of early PhD students with my supervisor and did a bit of teaching. And so that allowed me to do my master's in, in that year. And then I thought this is something I'm really interested in doing. And I think for me, when I had no ethics in my undergraduate education and I've always loved teaching I just thought this is something that I want to do I want to spread the word I think that's interesting you know because you did dabble in ethics with your history and philosophy um, and then it's almost as if you kind of refound your love for it and then came back to it again but you know much later on yeah. 10, 10 years um, you know after which which is interesting because it's obviously something that did impact you and you carried that with you um for for that time which is fascinating so you mentioned you know you obviously had to learn to balance um your MA um that you did um in in ethics alongside your PhD so how did you find that juggling all all of that well I didn't have any kids so that made it a lot easier uh my husband uh says that we never did anything (laughs) at that time because I spent every weekend studying basically for my master's when I was trying to write up my PhD and work in the lab and do that so I don't really remember that much because I was really enjoying it okay and I used this is terribly nerdy I used to drag him along to these um, conversation groups because it was a fascinating group and one of the great things about doing a master's um, is you meet really interesting people and so there was a whole range of people who were there different backgrounds some who worked from law some who'd been in academia different stages of their career um scientists clinicians so we had like a little group of eight of us and we used to yeah sit and drink coffee and talk <laughs> that sounds ideal i think one of the things about work-life balance one of the things that's really important is to try and find something you enjoy doing because there is no work-life balance if you don't actually enjoy what you're doing. So that isn't to say you should spend your whole life working or all your whole time working. But I think trying to find the thing that you really enjoy, because, and I say this to my trainees, you find what 
you enjoy doing, you are much more likely to be good at it um, and to want to put the time in. I think that's the difference between you know being okay or competent at something and excelling. So much of it comes down to your motivation and interest. So finding finding that thing and, and you know ethics won't be for everybody. And I'm very aware of that in my teaching. I'm not trying to make people philosophers, but I do want to persuade them that the, the human side of medicine is really important and it's something that they want to be involved with and they can do in their everyday care. Also, with this, on topic of you know, work-life balance, what does a sort of typical week or month entail in terms of job roles in your working life related to ethics and clinical? Yes, it's quite busy. Yeah. It's quite busy. I think part of it really depends on how much um, kind of leadership activity you want to do, because then taking on that responsibility of not just doing something but so it's not just what you do when you're at work, but the other things as well has an impact. I think partly it's my personality uh, that I also, if I see something that I think could be improved, I always want to try and improve it. And sometimes I'm learning to do this as I get older. You just got to accept that some things, it's not the time or the resources to do that right now. So that's something you learn about yourself. Um, so, yes, one thing that I'm interested in what I do and I enjoy what I do. But yeah, no, it, it, it's difficult. So uh, what is my average? I don't really have an average week. Um, I have actually become more careful with my time since the pandemic. So I try and make sure that my academic days are my academic days and um, keep them more well bounded, which was probably less the case before the pandemic. But I would I work basically clinically three days a week and then my academic days are two days a week. But then obviously I've got on-call activities as well. And there's not really a nine to five day in clinical practice. And when you're not there, it's impossible to completely manage it. One of your team calls you about something going on in your department on the wards. You, you, you really want to make sure things are done well for the patient, but also support your trainees because they're ringing because they need advice. Um, and then teaching is not, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the back of this. So one of the things I miss, actually, is I spend a lot of time kind of developing, teaching, new different ways of teaching and how it can be organised and involving a lot more clinicians in the delivery of teaching. It leaves much less time to actually do the teaching. I'm, you know, I, I miss not being able to do as much face-to-face teaching. I mean, most now mainly it's with my BSc teaching, I do, which I love. But um, And I, I give a few lectures, but most of my teaching, actually, I have other people who work with me um who do actually take on now a lot of the development work um but yeah it, it's yeah I wouldn't say it's easy getting your work-life mm-hmm. balance it does help I think one to enjoy what you're doing and think feeling that it's a job worthwhile to do and then it's very helpful to have someone at home who's good at cooking <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely an important point for all of us yeah. to take note of um, and I think I just wanted to hear your thoughts on the the view of you know medical students that view that they have on medical ethics and Andrew you know I'm sure you might echo this is sometimes it's seen as an extra burden you know in the curriculum because as you said you know it's not very well tested in exams and there are not many questions you know related to ethics and I think some students just say okay you know what I'm just gonna you know 
forgo those questions or try my best, but, you know, not really go to the lectures and things because they see it as not being relevant to practice. How would you, in, you know, encourage them to take part in ethics for those who, you know, let's say, aren't as interested in it or see it as being less relevant um, and don't, let's say, want to do an intercalation in the ethics? So I think you absolutely can't rely on the intercalation mm-hmm. as the way to bring people in. I think it has to start very early on and for them to start thinking about ethical issues that are relevant to them from the outset. Um, so, you know, we've tried with our, you know, in the, in the first year to frame ethical issues around problems that they are having. So, for instance, issues with team working within their groups as a learning space. They have to examine, they have verbal, it's clinical anatomy, living anatomy, and they... Um, have to work together to examine each other. Obviously, there's reluctance about that. So exploring, you know, is it reasonable to say to a student, you must allow another student to examine you? Probably it's difficult, isn't it? Because we wouldn't say to a patient that they have to be examined. So just thinking about that, but then also thinking about what kind of student they want to be, what kind of peer colleague do they want to be, uh, what kind of future doctor they want to be. So hopefully bring a bit more nuance into how they do that. And I think experiential learning is really important where they're actually doing something. I think, you know, st- students love when they finally get to see patients. And I think, I think virtually all medical schools now have brought that into, you know, from year one, because that's why they did medicine. So experiential learning where you're actually doing something that feels as though it's got some purpose. So one of the things that we've done in our school we've we've brought in service users so people living with health conditions um for some of our teaching because you know we can teach a lot about autonomy and respect for persons every single student can write autonomy mm-hmm. is really important but actually respecting autonomy is difficult it's difficult when you haven't got much time it's difficult when you're not aware of the biases that you have it's difficult when you don't appreciate that the person in the bed, the trolley, sitting on the chair in the consulting room, um, doesn't have the confidence or the language to disagree with you or put their point of view forward. Um, so how do, and the thing is, as a doctor, when you, when you see those moments, when you realise that somebody hasn't spoken up, it affects you. You, know, you feel bad. So I'm not going to make students feel bad, but how do we enable students to really appreciate that it's it's not so easy respecting autonomy. So we created a workshop where people with diabetes um, work with our students on a task, which is focused around the language that is still used a lot in healthcare in relation to diabetes, judgmental, talking about people having bad control, being bad diabetics. And these are our first year students. So they learn about you know, the pancreas and insulin and C-peptide cleavage. But um, they also spend half a day working with people with diabetes, not as exemplars of somebody with a disease, but as people who can share their experience to help students achieve this task that they've they've been assigned. Um, And, you know, the hope is that's experiential learning that will just be another resource when they're thinking about respect for persons, respect for autonomy, realising that the person isn't a patient, they are a person who's got a work-life balance, mm-hmm. who's got lots of things to worry about and needs some time and space to listen.
And we've also got teaching in our second year where our students work with architecture students. We have 600 students, half architects, half medics, redesigning healthcare spaces, people either with dementia or children with um, neurodevelopment conditions. And one of the things we did, we asked our students to, to walk between the two campuses because they would have to find a site somewhere between the two campuses. And just that process of walking and um, they had testimonials and question and answer panel, uh, service users and advocates and clinicians of thinking about what it is like just getting to a clinic. Because you know, as health professionals, we get very frustrated when people don't turn up. And we have no idea what it's like. So that process of walking again and having that journey and realising, you know, difficult crossings, public transport, poor lighting, to, to understand why it's it's not easy having a health condition and that process of respects. The other thing which students seem to have responded really well to is talking to them a lot about unconscious bias mm. and um and they're very interested in issues around justice and fairness in healthcare. Um, and but relating that again to what it means to respect somebody mm-hmm. in practice and why it's difficult. And I think, you know, medicine our intake is still not nearly as diverse as it needs to be. We still don't represent the general public. And I think students are aware of that. And so trying to feed these things in is giving students resources and motivation to do that caring I was talking about earlier, to take that time to think and think, actually, this matters. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think is when students, there's been a lot talked about moral distress, and I think that applies to clinicians, it also applies to students, probably in some positions. So providing opportunities for students to talk about when they've been in difficult situations and not to think, I think sometimes they they... They think that because a senior doesn't discuss it with them, the senior isn't impacted by it. And it's often just because the senior either has to go off and do something else or um, they don't think it's the student is the right person to share that kind of reflection with. So I think giving students to those opportunities, and we have found that um, students respond really well to that yeah. because there is a need. So I think it's not that people don't see that ethics is important. Maybe they don't, they think that ethics is just the four principles. Um, and they, yes, they are focused on assessment. Um, and they don't have the opportunities to explore the ethical issues in ways that seem relevant to them. So that's us as educators. We have to yeah. find solutions to that. Absolutely, yeah. So you would say kind of, you know, integration is not the way to, you know, obviously communicate these ethics. I think by that time it's too late. And yeah, no, it's for those students who are really interested. Absolutely, yeah. And I think by that time, you were mentioning about the language that we use about patients and, you know, people being bad patients or really diabetics. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's kind of catching that early and stopping that bad habit from developing of using language like that and starting from, you know, year one and integrating that with, with the teaching that you do, which is incredible to uh, to, to see um, and I think the the other kind of question that we had is obviously you've had a lot of work that you've done in medical ethics and um, a lot of kind of work outside of um, being a clinician so we've explored some of the benefits of that you know you get to do something that you love and, and make change and actually you know achieve that but can you think of any kind of drawbacks that 
you can you know that you can come across when when you're undertaking work outside of this clinical work that you're doing in the the, the work-life balance that okay. you were talking about is it's definitely you know i do sometimes wonder maybe i should just go back to doing a normal job but then do you know what you know in the nhs there are great things and there are th- any big organization has things that drive you insane and within medical education there are fantastic aspects to it and things that will drive you insane so the good thing is you know you've got a bit of both you can escape from both by having two jobs um so i i think i think it's great to have two jobs sometimes i wonder whether you know all that time reflection you know you can sometimes kind of wonder what it's all about you know an existential crisis <laughs> but then you you know the things you know it, and it has been a very difficult period that we've gone through as health professionals um and within the nhs i think actually spending time to reflect and having more resources to reflect has probably been i think i've been in a worse place if i haven't had that um i think it's just the, the way things have gone in the past few years um so any any downsides oh my kids they um they can spot it a mile when i go into my motivational interviewing <laughs> normative reasoning <laughs> i'm trying to persuade them <laughs> Of a certain course of action, <laughs> I think I obviously started too young with them, so they can see that straight yeah. away. <laughs> so yeah, that's the dance. I see. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for um, today. Um, it's been a really interesting conversation, which I've enjoyed. Just you know, as a final, you know, question: How really can students get engaged in you know medical ethics without necessarily getting you know formal education and moving forward? How can you pursue this interest in ethics and you know make into something else in general do you have any advice for so um if you have an opportunity to intercalate that's a great way i think having that additional time because there are a lot of skills and reading and thinking that just take time so having that that year to do that will set you up really well that said there are now more far more opportunities outside you know after you've graduated so i don't think you should worry if you haven't intercalated because Increasingly, I'm seeing um, foundation year doctors or early year higher trainees who want to do something different. And a lot of postgraduate qualifications now are modular. So you can build up credits over a series of years to get to um, a diploma or to a master's. And it's not just about the qualification. You're picking up all that learning and thinking um, as you go along. So I think there are a lot more opportunities to do that um a lot more online opportunities as well which are a bit cheaper and also with asynchronous learning means it can fit in easily uh, yeah because taking time out is a big decision to do um getting involved in medical education i think there's a, there are a lot more roles i think medical schools up and down the country are now realizing they have a kind of untapped resource within you know early years doctors as educators and it's really important that people are trained in education so a lot of clinical teaching fellow posts, people taking every posts. Um, so I think there are a lot more opportunities to do it. I think, I think if you're interested, you know, do a bit of reading, do a bit of thinking, um, listen, there's so much stuff now available, you know, podcasts, <laughs> but on the radio, um, and then just take the plunge and maybe go in, you know, just dip your toe in, you know, register for a, a short module, 
um, that won't completely break the bank and then see if it's for you and get involved with the IME as well. Yes, of course. <laughs> Just going to plug the podcast and take a moment to do that now. Um, which is, you know, I think, thank you so much for, for you know, addressing all of all of this. Um, and just to kind of wrap things uh, to a close. Do you remember one piece of advice that you were given, you know, when you were pursuing this this career that you have now by maybe a mentor or, you know, someone that, that had that influence on you? Um, do you remember a piece of advice that they gave you that's really stuck with you and that you tried to implement along the way? In terms of advice, I do remember when I started, when I um, took over the ethics teaching at Imperial, they didn't have any tutors. They said they didn't have any money for small group teaching. I said, come on, teach ethics about small groups. And um, I just said, so if I find tutors for free, can I do it? <laughs> and the head of my school said, well, I suppose so. But let's just have a plan B just in case. And so I do think you just believe it. In yourself, I and mean, one of my colleagues said, I'm quite stubborn. When I when I've decided that, that something isn't right and needs changing, I am a bit like a dog. <laughs> and I think it, you know you have to listen to people because you know my best work has come from collaborating with other colleagues and having ideas from them. But at the same time, when you're confident, you know yourself that this is important and it matters. If other people are trying to say we can't do it, we haven't got the resources doesn't mean you can't make it happen yeah so keep reality checking but <laughs> what you're doing is for the right reasons and really thinking about what those reasons are yeah I think that's wonderful actually and and yeah it kind of you know it pushes students to you know follow follow your path you know if you follow your your dream and as cliche as that sounds I think it is very much being resilient um and and being a bit stubborn at times mm. and making sure that you are being stubborn for the right reasons of course um, thank you so much for, for you know, coming along today and recording this episode with us. I think we've all taken, you know, a bit, bit away from this in terms of your experience and your advice on how to pursue um, something in, in medical ethics. And I think I speak for on behalf of all of us in the IME Student Council, that's something that we aspire to do. And it's amazing to hear advice from someone, you know, at the level such as yourself and um, and of course I understand work-life balance can be can be tricky and it's it's lovely to hear the pointers that you've given in terms of that as well. Thank you very much Gertrude and Andrew it has been a real pleasure speaking to both of you um, and yes if I have um, inspired persuaded a few students to get more involved in medical ethics that will be fantastic. I hope I've persuaded a lot more students um, that uh, ethics matters in their everyday practice. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's today's episode. Thank you to Dr. Wing Mei Kong for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening and learned something new. Stay up to date with our content at the IME Students by following us on Twitter and Instagram at IME Students. Until next time, it's bye from me and Gayatri.